right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 236. And looking in my record books, I found that Christine Sinclair's 236th cap was played in Houston, yes, my hometown, February 2016 in the CONCACAF Olympic qualifying final versus the USA. Canada went on that year to win their second consecutive bronze medal in the 2016 Olympic tournament. And I got to say, Sinclair is one of just seven players in the world to have earned more than 250 caps. And she is just five goals away from tying Abby Wambach's world record of 184 international goals. All right, two chats today. Excited about both of them. First, got a legal update from Andrew Doss, the soccer editor for the New York Times. Since last Friday, uh, the news dropped that the U.S. women had moved on from their EEOC complaint to actually filing suit against U.S. soccer for uh, gender pay discrimination or however it's supposed to be phrased. So I I was really happy to get Andrew on this podcast to kind of walk through what this suit means and what it doesn't mean. And then had a chat with sports journalist Shira Springer, who covers stories at the intersection of sport and society for NPR, the Boston Globe, and the Sports Business Journal. We talked about her recent article in the Business Journal about the steps that La Liga took to help women's pro football in Spain succeed financially. Hint, hint, they did it by not treating it as a charity or an afterthought for a start. Anyway, um, it it was fascinating to hear uh, everything that's been happening with Spanish women's pro football. So hope you like both of these chats. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Andrew Das from the New York Times, the soccer editor from the New York Times. Andrew, thank you for, for making time to talk to the Mix Zone today. Happy to be here, Jen. So, of course, I had to reach out to you this weekend after the news of the latest kind of, I don't know, how do we want to call it, legal debacle between the U.S. Women's National Team, or rather their Players Association, and and the U.S. Soccer Federation. Um, It seemed to come out of nowhere, but this is actually something that's just been hanging out there the last couple of years, right? Right. I, I guess at some point it officially becomes a saga and, and not just a development. But, um, yeah, it, it all goes back now four years, maybe even five years to the CBA negotiations um, after the last World Cup, the grievances after the last World Cup, the turf fight before the last World Cup. Right. And then, of course, the EEOC complaint that uh, the women filed in 2016. And so this is different from, you know, a lot of the the contentiousness we saw with doing a new CBA, which which got done uh, early in 2017. This is more about just kind of the ongoing discrimination by U.S. soccer. Right, right. The EEOC complaint was a wage discrimination complaint. This is a gender discrimination lawsuit. So it's a little broader in its scope. They're talking about working conditions and pay and other things, uh, whereas the EEOC complaint was focused on wages directly. The um, 
a lot of the the background and a lot of the argument is the same in both cases. A lot of the, the numbers are the same. A lot of the grievances are the same. So in many ways, they're related. Uh, but the EEOC complaint was almost three years old, would have been a couple more weeks would have turned three. And I think the players were just fed up that it was going nowhere. I think everybody agreed that it was going nowhere. So they asked the EEOC for a, what's called a right to sue letter, which allows them to then end that complaint. It officially ended that complaint, mm-hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, but allows them to take their case and their complaint to federal court and, and sue under the Fair Pay Act and some other, uh, some other legalese that we don't need to get into here. So, And so what happens now? I mean, does anything have to happen before the World Cup or is this just an upgrade of that complaint? No, I think they did it now to kind of have the big splash of it before the World Cup, well before the World Cup. Um, mm-hmm. They'll do, they did some media today, some TV media today. Um, we broke the news on Friday, but now it's everywhere. And so they will have all these discussions at their next few games. But as they get to May and, and taper down to the World Cup, it won't be there. Now, remember, Hope Solo filed a very similar complaint uh, last August for mm-hmm. gender discrimination. So she was technically first. I don't think Hope had, she got kind of out ahead. She hadn't followed the EEOC thing, I think, to its conclusion. So mm-hmm. there's going to be some motions now to combine Hope into this class action with the entire team, I think. Mm-hmm. And then they will all move forward as a class, which would include then people, uh, anyone who's been uh called into camp or played for the national team in the last i think it goes back to february 2015 would you know you have people like sydney larue people who've been in and out who right. were named in the complaint but are right. now part of this larger class that they're going to uh try to make which is not a huge class it's not thousands of people who bought Toyotas, right. but it could be you know 50 75 people right uh, in the end right right that makes a lot of sense. And, and a lot of the, the details um, in the complaint, um, which and you can read the whole thing o- online. It's been posted in, in a few places. It's, it's really fascinating to, to see some of the, of the details that even when the U.S. women have made more money in, in a fiscal year for U.S. soccer, that they weren't getting paid more than the men. Right. That was their complaint all along, I think. Um that even when they won the World Cup in 2015, they made less than the men had made the year before for going in the second round. And so, uh, you know, I'm always cautious about um, comparing the men's and women's pay. And I It's complicated. Point, it's so complicated. It's complicated. And I wrote a, a piece in 2016 that I tweet out every time this comes up where the headline was, it's complicated, basically, yeah. because, um, and it, it breaks it down. The women get guaranteed salaries and smaller bonuses because that is what the women bargain for in their CBA. The men's CBA just provides bonuses, uh, match bonuses, roster bonuses when you're on the team. So uh, the biggest, the easiest way to explain it, I guess, to people is if a woman's player tears up her knee and she misses nine months, she still gets 
an income. She's not going to lose her house. If right. a men's player tears up his knee and he's away from the team for a year or so, he gets zero from U.S. soccer. But of course, he has a massive club salary to fall back on where the women do not. And so they're getting paid from different sources. The men make more always because they make more from their clubs and the bonuses. U.S. soccer, to its credit, has tried to narrow this gap. It's not perfect. And because of the structures of the CBAs, it's never going to be a dollar for dollar match as written in the contracts. It's just too hard. The women play more games. The men play fewer games. The World Cup qualifying for the women is a two-week tournament. For the men, it's like a two-year slog of continental you know, games across the continent. So it's it's a little different. And that's why I always tell people, it's you've got to see the nuance in it and you have to see the gray. It's not just a black and white thing. The theory that the Federation should be spending as much on both teams is absolutely true, but they spend things, they spend money differently on the teams because the teams have asked them to spend that money in different ways. And so it's a little hard to match up. That's that's a right. hard thing to explain to people in 280 characters on Twitter, which is why <laughs> U.S. soccer gets beat up on Twitter all the time over this, because it's hard to defend unequal pay. So Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's so important to to point out that you know they have been getting the pay they've asked for on on both sides, and I, I liked that uh, you know your article in the New York Times referenced um, going all the way back almost almost twenty years to you know the the agreement that the team came to with us soccer following the 1999 women's world cup, you right, know, and, right. and, and I remember talking to Julia Foudy about this a couple of years ago, um, you know, when all this was happening, I, I said, when you guys were first, you know, executing a CBA, I mean, was, was your idea that it would come to something what's happening today? And she's like, no, we were just trying to make sure that anybody that got called into camp got paid. You know, yeah, like, like the, that they couldn't call you in with it without paying you. Um, and of course, when, when, when you think about that, that goes back to 1995, you know, before we had any semblance of a, of a pro league. And like you're talking about, you know, when these players aren't being paid by U.S. soccer, they're either not being paid or they are you know, not being paid a lot coming from a club salary, whether it's NWSL. Or, or or somewhere else, and or right, you know, or you had to back in that yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, you had to go to Europe to maybe find a club in Sweden, and you know. But that that's in in itself is a hardship. It's a lot yeah. different if you can play in Orlando and Houston today, yes. than if you had to go play in Stockholm or you know yeah. rural France or or something. It's just it's a different it's a different dynamic. But it's still such a big disparity between the men and women's on the club side of things, like like you mentioned that. You know, MLS has progressed so far in the last 10 years that even the minimum salary is a pretty healthy salary. And, you know, obviously we're not there yet with NWSL, though NWSL has made huge strides uh, in in the last few years. Um, But so so I whenever this comes up and someone will ask me about it or or I get the opportunity to talk like on a podcast or radio show about it, I try to explain it's like you they're not apples to apples. You can't just say they should be paid the same. Now they should be paid equitably. I I think that's, that's a better word for it because when you do go through that, that legal document and you see, uh, you know, how they 
travel, what they spend on traveling the teams, you know, the resources they're given or setting the prices differently. Um, I thought that was interesting. They were talking about that the, the women's ticket prices are lower. So it's like, um, you know, it causes a, you know, a depression in right. sales, something like that. But yeah, I actually and read that and I was, I was like, no, the women's prices are right. The men's prices are ridiculously high. Right. <laughs> but, <Exactly. that's> <laughs> but again, if you're, if you're getting paid X dollar, I think it's a dollar 50 or something per ticket goes to yeah. the union or some number like that. Yeah. And, um, that's fine. But if you're getting a percentage of the revenue that you raise and your ticket prices are pers- consistently lower, well, that's a lower number then. Right. So right. Uh, the men can sell fewer tickets at higher prices and still make more money for their PA or themselves or however they dole it out. Uh, so it's, it's, it's never the same, of course. Yeah. And and the club salaries and the FIFA bonus payments are not under U.S. soccer's control. So to beat them up over over that is at times unfair. Um, U.S. soccer has issues it needs to address in terms of its treatment with the women. And I think to their credit, in, in the last three years, they've been very receptive to – uh, listening to the players, hearing their concerns, addressing their concerns uh, when and where they can. There are clauses in the contract now that if the men negotiate for something else or a higher per diem or something, the women automatically get it now. They don't have to go back or wait a couple of years until their CBA is up to get it. Uh, the women flew on a charter during She Believes a couple of weeks ago, which was unthinkable a few years ago, but is a nice luxury for a you know, as and it's it has performance benefits too, and that's why they always did it for the men, but they never really did it for the women. So, the fact that the union and the U.S. Soccer meet every two weeks has been immensely helpful, I think, in closing some of the gaps. I mean, it was a titanic gap, and it will take time to close it forever. Uh, but the the motivation, I think, there is to do right by everybody. It's just that they they haven't yet, in many cases. So. Yeah, and, and I feel like we're in a big transition period, obviously, for U.S. soccer with, uh, you know, Carlos Codero coming on last year as president. And, you know, they now have a GM for the men's national team. And we're supposed to get one at some point this year for the women's national team and a, a lot of, uh, you know, youth coaching changes. So it, it, it just seems like a very big transitional era for U.S. soccer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you saw it with the men's team last year that it, how long it took them more than a year to hire a coach, you know, a yeah. quarter of the qualifying cycle looking for a coach. And it it's just the World Cup bid, the presidential election, all of those things ate up so much of the first part of last year, right up until the bid won in, uh, in June, that they got so far behind and... You know, but now you notice, you know, the women's GM still hasn't been hired. They announced this well over a year ago. So, again, I, if you're a women's national team player, you're like, guys, get going. You know, we're always <laughs> at the back of the line. So, you know, it's it's the little slights that yes. I think great on professional players. And, and, and that, I think, is a part of it. So while U.S. soccer has improved, you know, it's the little things that they still have to kind of play whack-a-mole with or catch up on. Um, 
that keep biting them. And, and if you feel aggrieved generally over many years, you're going to feel those a little, um, you're going to feel those a little more personally. And, and the women now empowered by their success, their unity of the team, um, are really starting to flex their muscles. And it's, it's really been impressive to see them just stand up for themselves and say, you know what, this isn't good enough. And we want X, Y, and Z. And by law, you have to give it to us. And if you don't, we will go to court and we will sue you. And like you mentioned that they're, that they're very organized and, you know, it's, it's working as a group like that. That's, that's really going to pay off. When you talk to the players now about the union, you can tell how energizing that entire experience is for them. Kristen Press especially has done a ton of work. Uh, Becky Sauerbrunn, Sam Mewis is now on the executive board. Almost every member of the team is on one committee or another. They're really, really invested in this. And um, I think it, it's it's really been important to them to kind of understand both their value and their strength as a unit in what they can achieve. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think hope drove it at the beginning, but uh, ever since the union kind of shifted right before they cut the CBA, I think it's become a more team-wide um, experience and, and uh, push uh, to get everybody involved and make sure everybody's invested. And that is, I guess, how you get 28 players of different backgrounds and different experiences to sign on to a federal lawsuit. Especially when we know that some of those 28 players do not currently have a U.S. national team contract. You know, and or, it, or to be clear, you know, to be fair, don't really have a U.S. women's national team future either. Right. I mean, not right. everybody is going to be on that team forever. So, right. but you know, they're all on board with this because they think it's right because they're all part of this group now. And making it the you know, or asking for the class action status, you know, going back to beginning of 2015, that would incorporate a lot more players, including ones who you know, as you mentioned, you know, like like Sydney Larue or Amy Rodriguez, who've been in and out of camp, yep, or yep. say say a player like uh, Kaylee Ohai, who hasn't been called up in you know more than a year, that 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 kind of thing. Um, exactly. I just I, yeah, I, I think it's it's a really interesting development and. I do like too that that you guys pointed out how they're part part of the problem is kind of in FIFA's hands where there there are financial issues that US soccer can't control. I, I remember with the news in summer twenty fifteen uh that you know the how how different the bonuses were World Cups that, you know, the women got this yep. single digit number and the men got this double digit number. And, you know, I saw a lot of tweets about that. I remember having somebody tweet at me saying, hey, help me raise funds so that I can give a couple more million to the U.S. soccer players, <laughs> you know, which which is it's like, you know, I kind of appreciate that. But it, it's like that money is not coming from U.S. soccer. That money is coming from FIFA, you know, that the women had already negotiated their bonuses with U.S. Soccer. They got it, and we know they got um, endorsements and all kinds of stuff, you know, from, from from other areas. Not saying they don't deserve to have the same, uh, you know, award money, but but it's like 
yeah, like I always feel like you need to blame the right person. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and you know, FIFA has doubled the prize money for 2019, which uh, you know, I bet, and I can't ask Infantino, we're not pals or anything, but I bet, yeah, you know, Sunil was in that room going, "Look, guys, we're getting slaughtered, and it's the right thing to do. This number is too small. Let's find a bigger number." And um, so I'm guessing U.S. Soccer and Carlos now and other people are pressing inside for some of these changes because I don't think necessarily FIFA would have acted on its own. I think Infantino understands uh, that it's a bad look. He understands that equality is a good thing for soccer generally. If more women around the world are involved in soccer, that's more people following soccer, men and women. And that's good for right. FIFA. And so there are people who understand it. Um, there are places where women's soccer is not valued at all. Still, even good soccer countries, you know, places like Colombia and and Argentina and Spain is coming around now. Italy is, you know, uh, has lagged behind for a country of the, its pedigree in soccer. Uh, right. So things are changing, but they don't – you can't just – you know, with the stroke of a pen, make decades of advances on one side equal on the other side. It's it's difficult, and I, I it's hard to wait sometimes. But that's why it's important for women like the U.S. women to do what they're doing to make it a cause. They're the most prominent women's team in the world, and other women's teams see what they're doing and have, as you know, have pressed for similar gains from their own federations, and some of them have have gotten significant gains and made significant progress in their own countries. And, and that doesn't necessarily help the U.S. women, but it's a very important development in the entire equality debate. Well, and the last point I want to make is that we actually saw a, a statement from the U.S. men's national team, you know, their players association supporting the women. And and that was huge because they haven't always, the two groups haven't always been working in concert in the past. No, not always, I think. Uh, but again, like I said, nobody wants to be for unequal pay. So right. it, it, it's absolutely helpful the more people that stand up and say, you know what, they have a point here. Um, I support that point. I support this initiative. Helps you get down the road a little bit further every time. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it surprised me when it hit Friday, but... The more I thought about it, it's like, yeah, they did file that complaint. And what's happening with that? And like you mentioned, it it is nice to see them, uh, you know, both teams working together, but also the, the women really being active, all of them being active and doing everything they can to really fight for the future for for not just themselves, but anyone on the national team. Right, right. And 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 um, they, this is the route they have to take. You know, the new CBA doesn't expire till the end of 21. Right. Uh, and because CBAs include languages about no strike and no lockout, they can't threaten to skip the trip to France this summer. They can't threaten to walk out on games that they're contractually obligated to play uh, because that's a violation of some obscure labor law that a lawyer will tell me I got wrong. But um, <laughs> the point is, they, the leverage, the real leverage they have is to withhold their labor, say, we're not going to play. And as part of the CBA, they do not have that leverage until now, at least the end of 2021. 
So a strike is not an option here. So they have to press their case in ways that they can. And if that is filing a lawsuit or a bunch of TV appearances this morning or raising it every time they play and when people talk about it or when other unions call them, um, that's how they have to do it right now because they can't strike, not at least in the near term. At the end of 2021, if they're really unhappy and talks are going nowhere, yes, they absolutely could. This is going to be, of course, interesting to unfold. The uh, U.S. women's national team never ceases to, to keep things entertaining for us, whether on the field, off the field. Um, but, Andrew, I have to say once again, thank you for taking the time to, to talk about this and, uh, you know, keep up the good work covering women's soccer for the Times. I appreciate it. Happy to do it. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Shira Springer, who had a couple of great articles recently about women's sports and women's soccer. And when I read them, I thought immediately I need to get this person on the podcast. So Shira, you have such a fascinating group of titles. So I'm just going to let you explain all the cool things that you do in the Boston area. Okay. So the, the pressure is on here to get this all. Yes. Um, I cover stories at the intersection of sports and society for uh, NPR and WBUR programs. WBUR is Boston's NPR news station. Um, I also write columns on women's sports for the Boston Globe and for the Sports Business Journal. That, that's the main stuff. And that's a lot right there. Yeah, yeah. It, it, keeps, it, keeps, it keeps life interesting. I'll tell you that much. I mean, I'm very passionate about women's sports. You're talking to somebody who grew up playing soccer in Connecticut um, and then uh, ran cross country and track and field in high school and college. So, you know, I come from an athletic background and I want to make sure that women and women in sports get the attention that they deserve. Well, and being in Boston, you have to tell us how many Boston marathons have you run? Oh, gosh. Uh, eight or nine. So, <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've done, I'm at 20, uh, 20 marathons so far and counting, but um, another one coming up later, in, I think later this year, I think in May, we're looking at one in May. I'm looking at one in May. And uh, yeah, I love it. I am a, an avid marathoner. We can talk marathoning all day, but maybe maybe another time. Yeah, maybe in, maybe in a marathoning podcast. But here, obviously, <laughs> we're talking soccer and women's soccer. And you had a fantastic article this week. Uh, was it Sport Business Daily or Sport Business Journal about actually, La Liga? Sports Business Journal, yeah. Sports, Sports Business, Business Journal, Journal about uh, La Liga and the growth of women's soccer. And it, it's that kind of article for me that I love to read where it's like, yes, somebody has figured it out. See, you invest in women's soccer, it grows. It, it You can make money. Look, look, people, look. <laughs> that's my reaction <laughs> to an article like that. Uh, but why don't you, I, I know the listeners haven't, probably haven't seen this article yet. So talk about, one, what led you to cover La Liga women's soccer and, and what you found. Yeah, so back in January, I saw this headline about uh, there being a record 
set at a women's club game in Spain, a new attendance record. It was 48,121 fans who watched a game. It was a Copa de la Reina. And excuse me if my, my Spanish pronunciation isn't exactly <laughs> on point, um, but it was a Copa de la Reina uh, quarterfinal between um, Bilbao and Atletico Madrid. And I thought, wow, what what is behind that? What is behind that number? What's happening in Spain that they are drawing 48,121 fans to a women's club soccer match. And so I reached out to La Liga and I said, you know, tell me what, what's going on here. And eventually I talked to uh, the director of women's football for La Liga. And he told this absolutely fascinating story about how basically women's soccer in Spain was dead three or four years ago. And that was problematic because they had men's teams with women's clubs and they weren't getting a return on their investment. Um, And La Liga said, we have got to figure this out. We have got to do better. How can we do better? And, And more than how can we do better, how can we create basically a winning strategy, a, a smart business strategy that builds up women's soccer in Spain. And so there were a couple of things that they did, but I think they made some really smart marketing decisions. And, you know, this is this is because it's Spain, there's such passionate and fierce loyalty around the different men's clubs. And they basically right. made the made the case that, hey, if you are a fan of FC Barcelona, if you are a fan of Valencia, um, if you are a fan of Bilbao, you sort of, you are also automatically a fan of both the men's and women's club. It's as, as the director of women's football, Pedro Malavia says, it's one crest. And they, they use that argument, like it's one crest, it's one team effectively that you are rooting for. It's one organization. And they also put out this really great um, marketing campaign called We Speak the Same Game. And as part of this marketing campaign, they did a video. And all of the clubs that had uh, both a men's and women's side had stars from their men's team and stars from their women's team simply talking soccer. And they were in the same uniforms. Uh, They were just, there wasn't anything promotion, like outwardly, like, oh, you have to come see a women's game. It was just, here are two elite soccer players talking about soccer, and they looked like equals. And it was the optics and it was just the simplicity of it all that really, I think, connected with an audience. And then the other thing that they did, which I found uh, fascinating, was they opened up the men's stadium and they aggressively marketed games in the men's stadium. So this year there will be 10 games uh, in men's La Liga stadiums. Uh, and so far, they've held five, and uh, five of the, the average number of fans per match in those five games has been 22,131. Um, oh, so that's, that's a excellent. byproduct. Yeah, it's a byproduct of their aggressive marketing campaign, of this belief that, you know, they, they do speak the same game, that loyalty to the men's side it should be followed by loyalty to the women's side, um, or should engender loyalty to the men's side. But the other thing that's so key is the broadcast aspect of this, too. So they don't have the women's games don't have all the bells and whistles of the men's games, but they do have some of the same 
production elements. So for example, there's a sky cam that they use for women's games. So they get great angles and great overviews um, of the play. They also use a technology that allows for video analysis and you can display tactical data with this programming. So they are not only uh, marketing it strongly, but they are also introducing elements that make the women look good and show the talent that is truly on the field. And then they are analyzing it like they would analyze the men's game. So again, this notion of, you know, it from the perspective of La Liga, we are putting out a roughly equivalent product in their mind. I mean, like I said, not all the bells and whistles in the production, but a lot of them. And I think that well, and just the over 70 games will be over 70 games will be yes. on TV yes. is huge. Yes. I mean, that consistency is so essential, you know, and then, you know, and let's be honest, like uh, something I wrote in the column, which was like, I get it. You know, Bill Bow is a special case. It's it's and, you know, they're they have their policy of Basque only players. And, and with that comes a particularly intense loyalty uh, to the team there. Uh, and they also offered season ticket holders for the men's club uh, free tickets to this this match against Atletico de Madrid. And the general uh-huh. general public was charged five euro. I get that. And, you know, some people may say, well, they got, you know, free tickets to a large number of fans. Still, 48,000 is 48,000, no matter how you get them in the stadium. And it should be noted that that is the largest crowd in the La Liga uh, stadium in Bilbao. It beats the largest crowd for the men's club this season. I think the men's club has only had 46,000. So don't take away, like I would say, don't take away anything from that achievement just because there were some free tickets and, and, and cheaper tickets than you would get for the men's side. Well, especially when just because a ticket's free doesn't mean you're going to go. Sometimes exactly. being free can, can, can devalue an event. You're like, you're like, oh, yeah, it must be no big deal. What yeah. I like when, when clubs do that, saying, hey, you have season tickets with us for the men's. Why don't you check out the women's ticket? you know, the women's game, here's one free ticket. It's not like they're giving them all free tickets. They're saying, go, go to this important match, check it out. And who knows how many of those season tickets for the men thought afterwards, like, hey, I, I want to get tickets for the women's for next season. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, you have to have sort of a startup mentality in some respects. And you have to say, yeah. let's get them in there. Let's create a great unforgettable environment, however we create that environment, however we get tickets into people's hands and, you know, butts and seats, as they say, however that happens, the important thing is to get people to see this game live and to experience all that women's football can be in Spain. And I'm sure just like the U.S., it's the same in Spain where every butt in seats, even if that ticket is free, they're still spending money on perhaps parking or some kinds of transportation, concessions, merch, that all comes back Mm -hmm. to the team as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it just, I mean, think about this. I am writing about that game because of how many butts they got in seats. There is a ripple effect from that one game that, you know, it has a very long tail, I should say, you know, and it is, it is making people think and look at what, they are doing in Spain. And I think instructive in so many ways for the NWSL and quite frankly, women's leagues around the world who might be thinking, how do we market this? How can we, you know, better invest in the women's side of the sport? 
Well, and one of the things this article made me think of, uh, especially following Liga Mex having you know great numbers in their in their big final in December as well as last May, made me think about how Mexico and Spain and other countries uh, where you already have a culture where soccer is so embedded in the culture, in in a way they have an advantage over the U.S. I, I think of it this way with women's soccer. There's three hurdles that a club has to get over. Is one, is there a culture of soccer? Two, the gender hurdle. And three, the brand hurdle. So yep. when, I think of, when I think about La Liga and I think about Liga Max, they already have the culture. They already have the brand because just like Liga Max, La Liga is doing the you know, hey, Barcelona, they're wearing the same jersey. It's the same team. It's the same crest. Same for, you know, Bilbao and, and, and the other teams. We don't have that in the U.S. and we don't have the mm-hmm. culture. So I feel like NWSL has had to fight all three where La Liga and Liga Mex, they're really their, their hurdle. And it's the biggest hurdle is the, hey, it's women playing soccer. But when you come up with such a brilliant marketing campaign like La Liga did, that I mean, that's how you do it. You don't make it this, isn't it special, or do it for the little girls of the future, or, you know, it's a charity, help us keep this team in business. It's just like, it's football. Football is yeah. football is football. And, yeah, and, and that this, was... Go ahead. That was great. Cause, yeah, no, they had a, a goalkeeper, again, pardon my Spanish pronunciation, from Real Sociedad, um, it was uh, goalkeeper Miguel Angel Moya. And he was like in the video, the We Speak the Same Game video, he, he literally said exactly that. It's not about men's or women's football. It's about football played by men or women, but it's still football. And I think to have a, you know, imagine, uh, you know, I mean, we hear this all the time from NBA players, you know, with, with the WNBA, like how much respect they have for women's players and the game that's played. But imagine having just use that equivalent um, because they, there are partnerships between the men's and women's teams there. But imagine, you know, a LeBron or, you know, another NBA star getting up and basically saying it's the same game. Imagine the impact that would have you'd like or like you'd like to think it would have um, in this country. I mean, and listen, Spain, as you said, has the culture. So they were ready and willing to accept it. I understand there are there are barriers in the United States, but. When, with regard to those barriers, you know, another key component was even if you don't have the culture, you can still make more of an effort on the broadcasting side. And I think putting the product in front of fans on a consistent basis also helps. You shouldn't have fans trying to figure out where they can get their women's soccer. You know, it right. shouldn't be a, an exercise of where is it now? What channel is it on? Where can I find it? Who's is it? Is there a game broadcast this week? There are four channels in Spain that broadcast women's soccer games. And as you said, there are 71 games being broadcast this season. You know, that you, you need the commitment. You need that commitment upfront. I believe, you know, we always have this chicken, you know, an egg. uh, Right. Argument about the media didn't cover it or I couldn't find it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the Spanish case is a good example of if you invest in it, if you make it, you know, consistent coverage and you treat it like you treat men's sports, the fans will come. You know, I think it's some it's it's one way of answering the chicken and egg question. 
Well, and I know my listeners have heard me complain about this before, and and I'm sure you'll enjoy complaining about it with me. But uh, especially following the conclusion of the She Believes tournament, I get frustrated with um, the overemphasis of inspiring little girls and let's, you know, let's focus on little girls. And they even had one of the press conferences um, and and she believes they had a, she believes kid, you know, there to ask a question and she was not training to be a journalist. It was just kind of like a, isn't it, isn't this cute kind of thing. And I'm not saying that that shouldn't be a function of, of soccer games that that shouldn't be part of the audience but when the focus is so overwhelmingly on that i i think it does a disservice to the game i think it does a disservice to your marketing um i i tweeted out a picture from the nashville airport last week of a of a fan i met he was on my plane he was wearing a sauerbrunn jersey um you know looked to be maybe mid 50s and i went up to him and i said hey are are you a Sauerbrunn or just a Sauerbrunn fan? He's like, oh, I wish I was a Sauerbrunn. But we ended up talking. He he had been following the U.S. national team since 1995. Um, he travels for every possible game. He emailed me today and said, only X number of days till I get to see them in Denver. And, you know, he's like, just into the game. You know, and, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. I know, I know there's so many people like that. And I wish we could see more marketing on, this is, you know, this is a team. This is a sport. They're going to the World Cup. These are great athletes. Maybe they inspire you. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're role models. Maybe they're not. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a sport. Can it, can it please yeah, just I mean, be a sport, please? <laughs> can it be a sport? And can it also be a, be treated as a business? I mean, I think when you, you yes, and you're, you're so right when you talk about, you know, so much of the language, so much of the way we refer to women's sports often borrows the language of it being a charity and support of it being about feeling good about what you're doing by going to a game. No, this is a sport. This is a business because, you know, and it should be looked at it that way because when you don't look at it that way, when you look at it as a charity and, and you know, the players as role models and not supremely talented athletes. I mean, they can be both, but they should also be looked at as supremely talented athletes. But that charity-oriented language, um, and that it, what it does is diminish, it, it diminishes the perception of the quality of the product. Or say the quality of the product is diminished, I think, in the eyes of fans. And that's problematic. And I have never, ever thought that courting young girls Um, is the best marketing strategy for women's soccer um, in America. Like I said, it can be part of the strategy, but it's just fundamentally problematic, right? Because, listen, these young girls, um, they may aspire to be professional players someday, but they can't drive themselves to games. They can't buy tickets. They can't buy merchandise. So you are now depending on probably overworked, exhausted parents, you know, buying these tickets, taking their kids to games, and they're only going to come once or twice a season. You have a more dependable, I think, fan base when you court people who are passionate about soccer, who know the players, who care about the, the various club teams and the national team. I mean, that's where it's at. And you build from there. 
young girls can be part of it, but they shouldn't be the primary focus. And we shouldn't always be talking about role model, role model, role model, role model. Yes, again, it's part of the equation, but we need to focus on this as a sport and as a business and treat it like it, you know, the serious sport and business that it is and should be. It's, it's so important. And, and I've, I've said this before, but it just it, it bears repeating because it's so key. Um, and and I, I can't take credit for this myself. This is um, something Dan Laletta from Equalizer Soccer said to me more than four years ago. And, and I like how this simplifies the issue so well. He's like, men's sports are marketed to adults. Kids mm-hmm. grow up watching their parents go to these games, watch these games. So kids grow up thinking that's what adults do. The way we've been marketing a lot of women's sports, we've been marketing to kids. So kids get the message. This is what kids do. They grow up, Mm -hmm. especially those, you know, those young girls in the stands at the She Believes game. Ten years from now, they are not going to be thinking, oh, I need to go to the U.S. game. They're like, oh, that's what I did when I was a a preteen and it was great. But that's Mm -hmm. what kids do. Mm -hmm. Having watched uh, the Breakers play and seeing these young girls at games, I can tell you for a fact that it was more about these young girls sharing pizza with their teammates than it was about anything going on on the field. And I talked to players at the time, this was a few years ago, uh, with the Breakers about that. And they said, you know, one of the things they love to meet and greet with the young girls afterwards, but you know, it was very clear that, that the young girls didn't know one player from another. They weren't invested in the team. They weren't invested in the play or the quality of the play. It was about the experience. It was about an experience with their friends and soccer teammates. And that's fine. It's simply not how you grow a sport. Exactly. Or grow a league or grow a league for that matter. Exactly. And I think it was Moya Dodd you know, from FIFA who said this. Um, I, I heard that she had said this. She's like, women's soccer is like a startup business. What do you do if you're running a startup business? You work on it every day, you know, instead Mm -hmm. of these, Hey, we had a two hour seminar. Isn't it great that we did that? You know, or, Hey, Mm -hmm. we had this, you know, women in soccer day and we had two clinics for 300 kids. Isn't that great? It's like, that's not, you know, that's not an investment. Completely, completely agree. (laughs) So we're just, yeah, we're just preaching to the choir back and forth here. But uh, yeah, I just, but, it's, I, but it's but it's baffling to me, right? How come the, the higher ups, maybe the higher ups at the NWSL do get it, but how come there hasn't been a change? Why don't they? Why isn't you know there does it? Why hasn't there been a shift in approach? I mean, you've had so many different iterations of women's pro soccer. Um, in the United States. And it just seems to me that, uh, you know, there's a lot of the same mistakes being made, uh, you know, with league after league. And, I, you know, what is it? What, what, why are they so insistent um, on marketing to young women and marketing, uh, you know, the, the NWSL as, you know, the players there as role models? I mean, that's certainly the message I'm getting. I don't know, maybe you're getting a different message, you know, or you see, see change that I don't see. Well, one, on the league level, we see almost no marketing. Two, uh, for the clubs, it's it's all over the place, depending on resources, who the ownership is, you know, um, where where the 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 franchise is, if they have a, a men's club partner or not. I, I think, you know, it, it's pretty easy to see that the teams that prioritize 
um, adults over children do better. And obviously the, the shining example there is Portland Thorns. You look mm-hmm. at the crowd mm-hmm. for any Portland's game, it's not, you know, tons of small children. You know, when we think of all the people who have traveled to NWSL finals over the last several years, even when, you know, the home team's not in it. Like uh, this year, the home team was the 2017, 2016, 2015, the home team, the host stadium didn't have a team in it, but you still had, you still had, you know, 8,000 plus show up. So that, you know, that, that shows a lot of travel. Like you said, a kid, a young girl, does not have the the resources to go, oh, I'm going to go travel. I'm going to, you know, fly and get a hotel and, and, and go to this. And when I think of the World Cup tickets, which the individual tickets went on sale today, you know, it, it's like that's, you know, you're not going to have a 12-year-old go, hey, mom, I bought World Cup tickets mm-hmm. and, I'm got, and I booked a ticket to France and we're, we're ready to go. Um, and so if it's, they it, do, they're in trouble. Yeah, I know. Like now, that would be a great story, but I'm not thinking it's you know, not thinking it's it's happening. Um, but I just i i do want to see i do want to see the the franchises change their marketing, especially in what could be a very powerful World Cup year. Um, I get frustrated that they have in some cases made the same mistake as we saw with MLS who early on focused on the soccer moms, the youth, the youth soccer kids. And it's, it's like those people have the least amount of time and the least amount of disposable income to, you know, to go out to pro soccer games where kind of the second generation of MLS with Seattle, Toronto, and then Portland and other teams were like, oh, if we focus on the young urban market, the people with lots of free time and disposable income, look, we have filled the stadium. And you never, obviously, you know, I've already said it. It's not that youth fans aren't part of the whole equation, but they can't be the predominant part of the equation. I completely agree with you. And I wanted to go back to, to sort of the example of the Portland Thorns, because we were talking earlier about culture, right? Established uh-huh. culture. And then also this marketing um, of the men's and women's teams has equaled. And I think one of the things, as I understand it, first of all, Portland does have a bit of that culture um, in the sense that, you know, my understanding is the University of Portland has had a very good women's program for some time. So that yes. helps. It's, it's very much like it is in my neck of the woods. I'm not far from stores, Connecticut. Um the UConn women's basketball team has done wonders for the perception of female athletes, particularly in Connecticut and to some extent in greater New England. So then developing a cultural appreciation for female athletes and, a cult, and an understanding of just how talented female athletes are. And so the other thing I've you know read about with the Portland Thorns and both Portland um, soccer organizations is the logos. It's the Portland Timbers and the Portland Thorns. They're, they're the logos are the same size when you go to the stadium, right? So I've seen, you know, that's a good example. Again, we talk about the optics and about, you know, how the way things look and making it clear that these are two equal teams that are part of a bigger club. And if you're rooting for Portland, you're rooting for both the men's and women's clubs, but those optics are so important to stress the quality and equality of the teams. Definitely. Definitely. Well, Shira, I hope you're going to be writing a lot more about soccer 
in in the lead up to Women's World Cup and and afterwards because I've enjoyed what I've read so far. I know that that your scope is more than just soccer, but I hope we will see some more soccer in your future. Absolutely, a hundred percent. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. NWSL preseason is in full swing as the international players have started returning to their clubs following the recent FIFA window. Rosters will have to be reduced somewhat next Monday, March 18th. And then final rosters should be announced the Monday before the first weekend of the regular season. And we know that rosters are larger than they've been in the past. Teams can sign 20 to 22 players to their regular roster and up to four supplemental players. I'll keep updating my NWSL club rosters on Google Sheets. Uh, You can find that link at keepernotes.com. And we have seen the unveiling of 20 of the 24 Women's World Cup kits for this summer from Adidas and Nike. Those two vendors represent the outfitters for 20 of the 24 teams. Of course, Umbro has also released the jersey for Jamaica. Note that this is the first time that the authentic version of the U.S. Women's Kit will be available for retail, though it probably won't have that pesky FIFA winner's patch. Don't get me started. But it will be the ridiculously overpriced, athlete-style cut, extra-detailed jersey that you've all been waiting for. Um, The whole authentic jersey concept is actually pretty new, but I'll I'll go into that in, in a podcast sometime. But hey, you finally have the overpriced option just like the men's fans the men's fans do. And speaking of those kits, the U.S. women will debut the new kits at their two friendlies in the April FIFA window. They'll host Australia in Denver on Thursday, April 4th, and then they'll play Belgium for the very first time in L.A. at the new Bank of California Stadium, home of LAFC, on that Sunday, April 7th. And of course, NWSL season starts the following weekend. And last but not least, please be sure to follow Mixzone and Keeper Notes, my two handles on Twitter. Of course, with Mixzone, that's two X's. I sometimes do trivia giveaways, uh, sometimes just post random video links. Um, You should enjoy it. And if you enjoy hearing me rattle off Arcane Woso stats and stories, you should follow Keeper Notes on Mixler as well. And that's M-I-X-L-R. I I will be doing a live audio cast of this Saturday's Dash Intra-Squad scrimmage at 10 a.m. and also the Dash versus Texas A&M game on March 23rd. You can listen free via Mixler from your smartphone or from your computer. So, Mixler.com, M-I-X-L-R.com, or just the app, Mixler, M-I-X-L-R. Note, I did one last Saturday for the scrimmage, the Dash Had versus UT, and I've actually saved that audio file to the Mixler page. If you have any interest in listening to it, of course, very few players were wearing numbers, so that made that uh, a challenge. So it's, I would say it's, let's call it a goofy cast, less less than an audio cast. It's just a goofy cast. So that's it for this episode of the Mix and Women's Soccer Podcast. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone who follows me on on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or wherever. And many thanks to Sean for making this whole podcast happen. But now she's anybody's girl.